Hej, Jørgen. Hej, Kate. This is episode 12. 12. <laughs> so where are you from? Yep. Podcast. <laughs> How are you? You know, man, I am doing really, really well. Me like, too. Yeah. All things considered, yeah. It's pretty good. Like, rearranged my room. Right? Awesome. I fucking have been Marie Kondoing my life for the last couple of weeks, and it's been great. So We record in Kate's room, yes. by the way, <laughs> and Kate's room is immaculate. No, my God. Just... It is. It truly is. I mean, it's because I've gotten rid of so much stuff, man. I mean, we got to talk about, like, Asian hoarding again at some point, but <laughs> it's, like, a real, it's a reality, and I have just, like, purged so much stuff, and it's just, like, I'm going through my closet, and I'm just like, does this give me joy? Nope. Does this give me joy? Nope. Does this give me joy? Nope. <laughs> Lots of joyless items in my <laughs> possession. It's funny how, like, both hoarding and, like, re- Reduction purging are both like really Asian things. Yes. It feels really good to get rid of old stuff. And totally. Now I feel like the things that I have are like here for a purpose. They're here to make you happy, Kate. Yes. Yes. Kate, did you know we got a listener letter? You know what, Yoko? I did know that. <laughs> oh. I, <laughs> I let it. <laughs> Me too. Um, first of all, if you want to write us, yes. you should write us at swayfpodcast at gmail.com S-W-A-Y-F You may have missed that at the end of our last episode but we are now accepting listener letters. We want Please to be nice. Yes. And be it nice. is 100% not anonymous. We can tell who you are. <laughs> yes, because it's an email. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, we got a, our first listener letter from Sylvia in Hong Kong. What's which up, is Sylvia? Awesome. Shout out to Sylvia. Neither Yoko nor I. We don't know who you are. We don't it's know so you. It's so cool that you wrote us. So thank you for writing. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but she was referencing our recent episode with Ingru Chen, where we were talking about um, keeping in touch with family and how with Asian people, it's actually like really, it's like a big deal. Yeah. Um, but what we didn't talk about was what happens when we don't keep in touch. And the shame that's involved. <laughs> oh, the shame. Kate, you have a story to tell us? Yo, dude, I mean, <laughs> my entire family is on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And um, I get guilted and shamed by my family all the time for yeah. not calling enough and not texting enough and just not being as inclusive about the goings on in my life. So much so that um, it's caused my mother to make several assumptions about my life based on what she sees on Facebook and Instagram. What kind of assumptions, Kate? Well, I posted a a picture of me and a friend, and uh, apparently I only post pictures with me and other female friends, which caused my mother to text me and ask, who's that girl that you posted on Facebook and Instagram? The caption says, someone I love very much. And I was like... Is it unfathomable to think that I have female friends? <laughs> and she was just like, no, just wondering. And I was like, oh my God, 
what are you insinuating? And she's just like, well, what am I supposed to think? You never tell me if you're dating anyone. You never oh my tell God. me, you never oh. post any pictures with boys. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and I mean, but it turned into this whole thing of like, you don't call home enough. Mm. And what am I supposed to think? I'm just sitting here retired, like on Facebook and trying to put together these pieces. And you're like, it. the, the thing that I came away with was like, oh my God, you're a bad daughter for not telling your mother more things about like your love life. Yeah. And these sort of these sort of things manifest as a result of that, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel oh, I feel tons of shame and tons of guilt. I mean, initially I was super pissed, but whatever. Yeah. I yeah. Mostly wow. because if my mom knew how boy crazy I was, I think she'd like lock me up and throw away the key. Fellas. Fellas, I am so single. Please, <laughs> dear God. Kate's a catch. Uh. I have a clean room, though. <laughs> yeah, Kate's room is really nice. You'd be so lucky oh, to, to spend a, an hour in here. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that too much? No, that's fine. But, <laughs> Sylvia, thank you so much for writing thank in. Thank you so much for writing in. It was so cool. I don't know. It's just mind-blowing that people that we don't know across the world are listening. Exactly. If there, And then Sylvia also gave us some uh, topics that she'd like to see us talk about. So mm-hmm. if there are any topics that we haven't covered, please feel free to reach out, ask us to cover them, or find guests that can speak to that. Yeah. Swayfepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, model minorities. A model a minorities. Hi, Kate. <laughs> I have a model. <laughs> Sorry. A, a model my, a minority. Um, you have a model minority, Yoko. I do. Um, my model minority is an actor named Riz Ahmed. Oh my god, yes. Cutie, first of all. He is hotness. Um, Riz, as I'm calling him, because we're on a first-name basis now. <laughs> my close personal friend, Riz. My close my personal CPF. friend. <laughs> my CPF Riz. My CPF Riz recently wrote an article in The Guardian um, called Typecast as a Terrorist. And he in it, he talks about... it's First of all, it's a fantastic article, and everyone should read it on their commute or whatever when they have, like, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Basically, he talks about the typecasting involved... Specifically, typecasting as a terrorist involved in, like, both auditioning and being at the airport. Um, And it's just a really... First of all, it's, like, a really well-written article, but it's just, like, really eye-opening for me as just, like, a a person who doesn't... Has the privilege of not experiencing that. Um, One big takeaway I got from this article was the fact that Riz talks about how in different contexts of whether it's like social different social circles or different groups of friends like he sort of is used to like um acting in different ways depending on who he's talking with and i feel like that is like a there's a term for it called code switching Mm -hmm. where you sort of like level with the people that you're like hanging out with and i feel like as uh minorities or asians or specifically if you're like a pakistani british guy it's kind of a a thing that like comes very naturally to you like where you sort of morph yourself into a person that is like a little bit more friendly or approachable depending on the group and like the way he describes like that as acting is just like so good and just like such a good article i loved reading it um what's the title of the article again it's called typecast as a terrorist and it's on the guardian and it's by riz ahmed 
my model minority. Yo, if you guys have not seen The Night Of, he is fantastic in that show. Also, mm-hmm. that show was just really well done. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Riz. Thanks, Riz. For being a bay. For being so hot. <laughs> He's not the first hot Pakistani guy to come out of the woodwork recently. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> Zayn Malik? Zayn Malik's Pakistani, right? He's he's Pakistani, too. What's up, Zayn? Holler yeah. at me when you are done with Gigi Hadid. Oh, Gigi Hadid <laughs> also is so pretty. Fuck. Ugh. Anyway, Kate, who's your model minority? <laughs> My model minority is a Japanese rapper mm? who goes by Cole. K-O-H-H. Mm. And um, I heard this dope-ass song last night because I went to go see... Um, the selection guys play mm. at um, Output in Williamsburg, and so Super Sam was there, hey. and I was rocking my one four three T. Anyways, I like caught her set, and she plays this fucking song, and I was like, "Yo, this is Japanese. This is dope." And he's talking about like all the different cities that he's been to, but he's in Paris. So the song that she dropped is called Paris, and it's the Sam Tiba remix. S-A-M-T-I-B-A. Cole has also appeared on Ichima with Keith Ape. Ichima! On the water squad! Skirt, skirt, skirt! Oh my god. I can't decide whether the... I mean, I love the original Ichima, but the remix with fucking Waka Flocka Flame, ASAP Ferg, Cole, and Dumbfounded, Dumbfounded is so good. Yeah. It's so good. Like, I think that... Asians and hip-hop are having, like, a real renaissance right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, Keith Ape kind of started it off, and then you got this rich chigga guy um, from... Where is he from? I think he's from Indonesia. Indonesia. Okay. <laughs> he's from Indonesia? <laughs> but if you didn't know who he was, you would think it was ASAP Rocky on that track. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, Asian hip-hop is popping right now, and um, I just really want you guys to listen to this song. Listen to Paris... Sam Tiba remix by Cole. Nice. It's fucking lit. Thanks so super Sam. For <laughs> responding to my tweet when I asked what that song was. <laughs> so let's talk about our interview uh, with Gary. Yeah. Uh, that was awesome. Yeah. We, uh, today on the podcast, we had uh, Gary Chow, who led this design cohort that I just finished participating in and gary just seemed like a really cool dude he also just very casually mentioned that he was the project manager on letters for black lives yeah <laughs> with his uh, teaching partner christina she and i really enjoyed the interview a lot yeah what about you yoko i really enjoyed it a lot too i f- i feel like i was just like a sponge just like trying to like retain as much as w- of what he was saying as possible just because mm-hmm. like I feel like he speaks like abstractly mm-hmm. in a way that is is easy to sort of use in different contexts. So I just want to like remember everything so I can like use it in any context. Well, good thing we have it recorded. Yes, thank goodness. I just thought the title <laughs> I should have done that. But yeah, <laughs> Gary's a cool dude, man. Thank you so much, Gary. Thanks, Gary. We enjoyed having you. Yay. Enjoy the interview. Hey, cheers, hey, Gary. Cheers. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, as well as being the founder of Orbital, he is a faculty at SVA, and he teaches a class called Entrepreneurial Design towards the MFA program in Inter- Interaction Design. Is that mm-hmm. right? That's right. Cool. 
I have a question. Uh-oh. What is entrepreneurial design? <laughs> Before we one. launch into anything. <laughs> uh, wow, that's we could talk for a whole hour on this. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, I'll, the the name of the course is something that we inherited. So that's just been part of uh, the syllabus of that program. Um, our approach to thinking about entrepreneurial design has been less about creating entrepreneurs out of that process, but more about how to get people to think entrepreneurially. Got it. Um, so the class is kind of like a reality TV game show. Um, we challenge the students to make $1,000 by the end of the semester using the internet, and they can't use time-based labor, so they can't consult. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, and they can't rent their bedroom out, so no Airbnb. And then, uh, what about TaskRabbiting? Uh, you know, if you wanted to incorporate it into that, oh, as a task rabbit, no, mm, no, that would not qualify. So mm-hmm. we want them to make something, put their name behind it, launch it, go through that process. What a cool idea! Has anyone ever made a thousand dollars? Uh, yeah, a lot of people do. No way! Yeah, it's, I think that the class in some ways is a way for the students to surprise themselves, in terms of you know getting them to realize they're m- much more capable of you know what they may have realized. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, as a designer, I I feel like entrepreneurship is something that's very out of my league. And I don't don't like saying that it sounds like it's something I can't do, but it definitely seems very foreign to me. It doesn't seem like if you have a design mind, you necessarily, you don't necessarily have an entrepreneurial mind too, but it's cool that you sort of have a class specific for designers to encourage that. You know, another way to think about that class is that as a you know digital designer today mm-hmm. or even a print designer today you're used to certain affordances in the materials that you use yeah and in some ways this class forces them to be designers but in a completely different environment than they're usually used to that right so fun so like you know a lot of them end up launching kickstarter projects because oh, gotcha. the kickstarter project is like a nice set of constraints that are packaged very very well and mm-hmm. it's a it's an interaction that people are used to, mm-hmm. um, but they still have to tell a story. They still have to think of an idea. It still has to yep. be their name behind it. They still have to think about how much money they need, and they still have to go and actually make it happen. And that's what makes it fun is that as teachers, um, you know, we're not really the authority figures, right? It's not about coming up with the project that pleases the teacher, pleases the instructors. We right. get to be coaches because whether it works or not is based on, it's going to depend on whether or not it actually works. Nice. Wow. Cool. Um, Gary, I realized we forgot to ask you our signature Oops, question. Our signature oh. question. I'm sorry. I totally jumped in. I'm sorry, Gary. I was it's just all like, right. wait, first, I don't know what that means. Wait, what is entrepreneurial design? <laughs> also, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can address the elephant in the room. Hey, Gary, so where are you from? This is this is the uh, this is the magic question, right? This, yes. This, this, is the, this is what makes this podcast the podcast. Right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so uh, I grew up in the, uh, a town called Orland Park, which is a south suburb of Chicago. Oh, wow. So I'm from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my parents are from Taiwan. Oh, cool. gotcha. And did, when did you move to New York? Uh, 2010. Oh, so fairly recently. Yeah, it still feels like one long trip. <laughs> <laughs> you just haven't bought your ticket back yet. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> well, that's where signing the lease to Orbital, actually the second time around was, was like the most commitment I've ever made to like anything. Like, oh, nice. because it's like, wow, I'm going to be here for three more years and I'm basically a New Yorker now. Yeah. And whereas everything else before that was just still kind of in the speculative phase of like, I didn't know it was going to work out. I didn't know like whether the job I had before was going to lead anywhere. And actually for all intents and purposes, I pretty much had planned to move back to 
the Bay Area, where I'd lived before. So I spent about 10 years living in California. I see. What's up? Uh, can you talk to us about growing up in Illinois? What were your surroundings like? Were you a minority? Were you in one of those, like, all-Chinese suburbs? Like there? an ethnic enclave? Uh, it was definitely not an ethnic enclave. <laughs> wow. Um, no, it was a pretty small, I mean... The Midwest is pretty white, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so it's one it's it's one of those where, when you're in like grade school, everyone wants you to hook up with like the one other like Asian person. Oh my oh god. god, that happened to me too. Weirdly enough, even though I had, there were other Asian people in my class. That's terrible. It's like you're Asian, they're Asian. It's like it's like pandas, right? Like, like you just want, there you are just so few of you. <laughs> you just want oh the god, pandas to be together. <laughs> But it's kind of true. It is. Oh, and, and, I, and so, like, yeah, I, I have this whole panda theory on, like, a lot of things, but... Please explain. Uh, Yoko loves pandas. <laughs> I love pandas. I'm surprised it hasn't come up yet, but I love pandas. <laughs> uh, it's been a while since I thought of this, but, uh, yeah, I think, like, I think that, like, that, it's it's such a, like, interesting kind of force when you're young, right? Because there's this all this pressure of like, oh, well, you should be with like your other Pokemon, basically, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what that does to you is that it, it kind of really kind of, I think, tilts your outlook towards, yeah. Yeah. towards your, you know, developing an identity for yourself, what that actually means, and it just has huge implications. So I think it's really hard for people that kind of grow up. Like, I always envied everyone who grew up in California, because mm-hmm. I'm like, Asian, they had, like they had. I, I, when I lived in in San Francisco, I lived in the Richmond district. Yep, all Asians, like, all Asian, right? And and it's not even my kind of Asian, right? Like they're all Cantonese. Yep. Yeah. Um, but it it was just a f- interesting like anthropological like exercise to be like, wow, these kids do they really know what they got here? Like, like do they really know what they gain through kind of this normalization? Yeah. You know? And that's something that I've had to struggle with like over like my adult life. Totally. I had a a similar experience moving to California from New York. Um, When I went to LA for school, that was when I think when I first realized being an Asian person that like Asian-ness is like very multifaceted, like not just with like countries or languages spoken at home or whatever, but like beyond that. Maybe I was also just growing up as a human, but definitely seeing like other different kinds of non- children of immigrant Asian people, I was just like, oh, there's like a whole other kind of Asian people yeah, out here. Yeah, it's not taught, right? Yeah, like, it's, it's not, definitely not taught. And, and so like those nuances, which are more than nuances, they're yeah. significant issues. They're not going to be, you're never going to learn about them until you actually stumble into that environment or until you actually stumble into someone who like, you know, came from a very different background yeah. and then like explains that to you. And so it's, it's like super complicated. It yeah. is. So Gary, what did you uh, what did you study in school? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so curious as someone who teaches entrepreneurial design now. You know, I, I never thought I'd be a teacher. Like, I, really? I never thought I'd be a teacher. I never thought I'd do it for five years. I've I've been teaching at SV for five years. Mm-hmm. I, I've I've never done anything for five years. Cool. Uh, I was a molecular biology major. What? Damn. Yeah. Were your parents just so proud of you? Uh, actually, that was like. Yes and no. I have two older brothers. They were both molecular biology majors. Oh, uh, the okay. oldest became a doctor. Mm-hmm. The older one is not a doctor, but at least went through the process of applying to med schools. And I never actually made it to like taking the <laughs> MCAT. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other thing too is like uh, when you graduate, right? Like you have like graduation, then you have like the class graduation, like the department graduation, yep, right? Yeah. So. At the department graduation, there was like some number of people in the program, and the chair got up and said, 
you know, this number of people are going to grad school and this number of people are going to med school and this number of people are getting a job. Uh-huh. And if you added that up, there was this delta of, like, seven people that were unaccounted oh, no. for. Oh, no. And I was, like, one of the seven. Like, I didn't, oh. I, And it's, like, funny because I know I still remember that number seven, right? Like, it's, in, it's like, just basically blazed into my head as, like, we are the people that have no future. Like, no. Wait, we are the they didn't mention that at the commencement or whatever. No, but I knew exactly how many people were I unaccounted see. for. Cause... I see. Because you were one of them. Yeah. You're like, I know there's at least one. Where are my other six friends at? <laughs> The other thing, too, with that major is, like, if you're not really into it, you're going to get your ass kicked, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, biology. Mm-hmm. So, at Princeton, they, they published the, the curve, like, mm-hmm. after every single test. Oh, God. Right? You so, went to Princeton? That's I, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what happens every single time you take these tests is that they, they, they publish the curve. So, and, and they don't show your name, right, next to the scores. Yep. But you know your score, yeah. so you know exactly where you rank with like every single every every everybody there. And so, you know, if you're gonna if you're going to take a major that is you know that has a high concentration of pre meds in it, like you really have to be in it. Mm-hmm. And, right. Um, on the flip side, though, the other you know the other thing about being in a science major is that like lab is also kind of a, a component, right? You have to go and run, like, run experiments and do stuff. Yeah. And so in, in lab, I was awesome. Like mm-hmm. I kicked everyone's ass in lab because like most people were really uncomfortable with like doing complex things and stuff. Like and doing so... things in real life, mm-hmm. not just theory. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was like cooking. Yeah. yeah, totally. You can read as many like recipes as you want. But, like if you, if you don't actually make it, it's like, yeah, it's not real. It's not but... real. <laughs> Unfortunately, like there wasn't like a disproportionate like you know value of lab in my GPA and stuff. So, <laughs> right. So still, kind of, I, I kind of graduated with a very huge chip on my shoulder as a result. Gotcha. So after graduation, I'm curious, what is the path that led you from molecular biology to SVA faculty? Yeah. Um. Well, so I mean, there are a lot of steps in between. I think that the other. I mean, I think the other thing that, that is probably relevant for the audience of this podcast is that in between my junior and senior year in at, at college, and, and this is where Princeton is actually very relevant, mm-hmm. um, I kind of helped organize a sit-in and a protest at Princeton you oh. know, Whoa. regarding the lack of, um, of you know, an ethnic studies program as well as, you know, faculty with people of color. Wow. Um, there are so no my... ethnic studies programs at Princeton? <laughs> Oh, God, that laugh is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I've, okay, now I'm realizing, like, going to UCLA, you're just like, there's all kinds of people here. So no, there's, like... there's, there's, there's nothing. Wow, like, really? It, well, what those... do you go to Princeton for? Like, what is it known for? I just, it's so far out of my league that I never even looked into uh, it. You, you go to Roe, you go to, mm-hmm. like, you know, hang out with, like, rich people. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I shouldn't stereotype. I mean, it's, there are a lot of really great people, in it, and it's hard for me to completely disavow that experience because sure, sure. there's so many things that I learned from from that. But, you know, th- that conflict was there, right? Yeah. Like, and, and that kind of bled over into my ability to, you know, really be excited about what I was working on or what I was studying, which also then bled over into kind of, you know, this question of whether or not my parents were happy with what I was doing or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it was, so it was so super complicated. Yeah. Um, but what ended up happening was, uh, so I graduated from college in 1996, which mm-hmm. was like a long time ago. Um, and uh, I'm picked up and, you know, after that graduation experience of like being one of the un- unaccounted for, <laughs> um, moved back to Chicago and 
kind of got to a place where I was like, okay, I've been arguing with my parents about like what I'm going to do. And this is all going to be, uh, you know, hard to resolve. Right. You know, when you're that age, you don't really see solutions. You see lots of problems. Sure. Yep. And so, uh, so what ended up happening was, you know, my parents sat me down and they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, you know, we've been kind of doing this argument for years and I'm just really tired. I don't want to argue anymore. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, kind of withdrew from that. Um, but then my brother kind of told me, like, told me like, you know, basically Gary, they actually really do want to know what you want to do. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, Mm -hmm. we've been doing this dance and he's like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was my grandmother in Taiwan had gone to the Buddhist temple and took my fortune and said that I'd be much more successful in business than in medicine. Wow. So for that reason, they were then willing to consider other opportunities. Now, if that hadn't happened, would they not be as convinced? You know, I think it's hard to say, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't, I think that, you know, when, if you were to rewind back to who we were, Mm -hmm. you know, my parents are very different now. Sure. But if you were to rewind to, like, who we all all were back at that time, I just, I don't know how that could have played out very well. Gotcha. Is is your family very um, spiritual, religious, or suspicious? Uh, You know. Or what is it? No, superstitious. Sorry. Suspicious. Suspicious. I mean, yes and no, right? Like it's it's it's. I mean, as as you as the two of you probably both know, it's like it's it's kind of ingrained culturally. Right? Yeah, like, exactly. Like it's and like it just kind of creeps up at the weirdest times, mm-hmm. you know, like, or at the most convenient times. <laughs> <laughs> this time it sounded um, pretty convenient. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is probably like the one time it's worked out for me, I guess. Cool. Um, but at that point, you know, again, this is 1996. Uh, Yahoo was a thing, and Amazon was a thing, and I'd studied. Um, computer science in high school, like I'd taken Pascal in high school, but I didn't take anything in college. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to go back. I think this internet thing is going to work out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Not just a blip. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I specifically want to, uh, you know, really get into software. Um, but I want to go back to Princeton and study software computer science there because I'd spent four years getting my ass handed to me by all these pre-meds. Mm-hmm. Well, Princeton had this continuing education program, mm-hmm. which was typically reserved for like old dudes and philosophy lectures. Oh. <laughs> and so I thought I could take undergrad courses through that. But they had this policy where if you were a graduating senior, they specifically did not want you in that program because they just want mm. you to, they want you to leave yeah, right? Right. they want you to spread your wings and fly and like, show success and... for your, for the university <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's just like you know go off and like you've been here long enough get the sure. hell out right. yeah. um, so I, I kind of flew back to Princeton and I met with the dean and I was like grandma temple you know Buddhist internet <laughs> and, then, and, and I think he was like okay I think it sounds like you got a plan like fine we'll let you in so he let me in uh, and then, like, I immediately, like, wandered over to the Department of Computer Science building for, I don't know why I did this, but I started walking around the building because I was, I was trying to find someone who could, like, give me a job because I needed to, like, be able to pay for everything. So I kind of stumbled into the office of the person that ran the IT facilities and kind of explained my whole pitch. And he agreed to hire me if I was willing to commit two years to working there, mm-hmm. which for me was, like, an easy a decision because I was going to be studying for two years anyway. Yeah. So that worked out. Um, and then I'd also studied photography in college. And the um, the senior uh, teacher there is relatively famous. And there had been this coveted teaching assistant spot that had been occupied for seven years prior. And the person that had that spot just, just decided to pick up and leave. And 
uh, and so suddenly they, they were in need of somebody. And so I was like, hey, I could do that. And so they knew me, and I kind of got that gig. So I had these two part-time gigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome. I had these continuing education courses in computer science. Uh, and then, like, that was how I spent the next two and a half years. Uh, and it was really confusing to a lot of my friends who were still on campus because they're like, did you graduate? <laughs> You're like that super no, senior I'm, guy. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just like, Right. I became the old guy on campus oh, that's just no. hanging out, you know, which is like a little creepy. Um, but the timing of that was all really lucky because between, you know, 1996 and 1998 is when I left. You know, the job market was great. You know, yeah. everyone was hiring. There was just so much money flying around. Like, it's, it's yeah. a, it was a very different environment than it is today. And so um, when I left finally, um, the first gig that I got was this um, software company in Austin, Texas. Um, and it hap- you know, just happened to be that people, some friends of mine had gone and worked there, and they came back and they were recruiting on campus. And so it was just this really you know, easy transition in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so it's just super random. Gotcha. Wow. Thanks, Grandma. Seriously. Close that temple. Shit, yeah, Grandma so totally cool. like hooked me up. Like, <laughs> Came in in the clutch. Oh my God. And and I mean, you know, like the thing too is that like I'm I feel really lucky about that because, you know, we probably all know people who were in similar positions, but it didn't work out that way, right? Yeah. Like that's a compli- It's a really really complicated situation. For a lot of people, you know, not just Asian Americans. Yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us about how you started Orbital and like what? Wow. That story is. You might need more sake. Yeah, so agreed. Let's do it. Yeah. Quick break. We'll <laughs> break. We do this often. Don't yeah. worry. No worries. Um, so or- it's funny. Orbital is kind of the, uh, you know, if I were to kind of look at significant transitions, like that's a significant transition. That's. I guess like 20 years later <laughs> after mm-hmm. yeah. the last one that we just talked about so it's a little bit of a time warp for me i used to work at a venture capital firm here in new york called Unisquare ventures mm-hmm. and um the job that they brought me out here to do uh is the thing that got me to that brought me from the bay area to new york but when i left you know i kind of had to go through this process of figuring out you know what i wanted to optimize for and uh i think i was 38 when i left Mm-hmm. And so I got invited to do a talk. Uh, it was going to, I was going to be speaking to some college students. So I kind of went through this process of thinking, I think you're both designers, right? Yep. Yeah. So I went through this process of like, okay, like what am I, what do I, what have I learned that I can share with a bunch of college kids that's going to be useful? So I was like, okay, let me just chart out my life. So like I went and I made like this slide that had like, uh, the number of years I've lived, you know, and then like tried to analyze that based on, you know, where I've lived, you know, the jobs that I've had, the kind of ways in which I would have like um, expressed my identity, you know, whether it's through a, through a employer or through a school or through a project. Um, and that exercise like was kind of scary in some ways because in order to complete the chart, I had to define, I had to fully define what the x-axis was, mm-hmm. yeah. which was basically the lifespan of like an adult male in yeah. the United States. So yeah. I like looked that up on Wikipedia and I saw that I was approaching like 50% of like my, my time. Oh my God. Whoa. Right. Having... Which is kind of, kind of trippy, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you're used <laughs> to thinking of things in like. You know, much much smaller time frames. Day by and, day, <laughs> and then and then when you're young, it's like the future's got so there's so many things that could happen in the future, yeah. right? And so I had to kind of face the stark reality that like I'm, I'm not getting any younger, right? So 
it led me to this framework of thinking about um, you know something that I'm calling now um, paths to be explored mm -hmm. and I think in this framework of paths to be explored if you know, if time is the thing that you value most, mm -hmm. then you don't want to spend it doing something that you've already done, right? And you want to spend it in a way that is going to open you up to new things or introduce you to new experiences or lead you to just, you know, new things as a result, right? Mm -hmm. So um, having worked in tech, you know, a lot of ways there's this sense that, you know, as you move up, you might become a manager or you might come up and become a founder of your own company or maybe you might go and, and become an investor and and all those other things, right? Like that's, seen, that's kind of this implied hierarchy in a sense. Yep. And um, while my primary role at USV wasn't on the investment side, like I had a lot of visibility into how you know, that, that industry works. And so it would not have been a good use of my time to immediately then go into another investment firm. Mm -hmm. Right. And then similarly, you know, I'd spent most of my time uh, in tech working for somebody. Yep. And so it would not have been a good use of my time to go into uh, another role where I'd be working for somebody, you know, again. And so when I had that realization, it was both kind of like nice, but also really horrible because you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, What's it's, the next it's, step? it's like you then have to create that for yourself. Yeah. Right. You know, you have to, and, and that's, it's a horrible like realization on, on the one hand it's liberating <laughs> and freeing, but it's horrible because you know how much work is going to have to go into it. Yeah. Right? And you're you like know, the sole person accountable basically for your own life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think another way to look at it too was that, um, you know, one of the one of one of my lessons learned from working at the firm was that it's really important to confront your own flaws. Mm -hmm. That you know, if you are hiding something, you're really just cheating yourself because mm -hmm. it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. So, like, what were you like hiding, or? Well, it's more that I think that I knew that I had a lot that I needed to learn, and the best way for me to go learn those lessons was to basically create my own problems, mm -hmm. right? So. Any job that was out there on the market could probably allow me to grow and become a better person and improve and work on my flaws in like one or two key areas, mm -hmm. yeah. but not like all of them. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'd never started a business, so I didn't really know what that was like. You know, most most times, like money just shows up every two weeks in my bank account. And, yeah. And I'm like, oh, cool, sweet. Like, what am I going to spend it on? You know, I never, I never really understood kind of where that came from. Mm -hmm. You know, and so. Uh, that was an experience that I wanted to, to have. Um, you know, I'm very idealistic, but how do you marry that idealism with, you know, being able to make pragmatic decisions as well? You know, so, and that was something that I knew I had to, to work on too. There's a whole host of things. And so I describe orbital a lot to people as the equivalent of like, you know, moving into the woods and then like trying to build a log cabin and then seeing if you can survive on the morning dew on the grass and just <laughs> all the things that you can make in a way, except for me, the equivalent is signing a lease to like a dilapidated tenement building in the Lower East Side and then seeing if I can kind of make it all work. Whoa. <laughs> so um, for those of us who don't know, like what is, what, what does Orbital do? <laughs> like... Uh, you know, that's a funny thing, too, because I think that um, for, you know, it's been two and a half years since I started it. And I think in a lot of ways, it's been in this realm of something that's been very hard to describe, um, much like a lot of ideas, right? Like sometimes when you're working on a new idea, you're just following a hunch, you're following a direction. And yeah. 
you're letting kind of the thing reveal itself to you. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the way I describe Orbital now is uh, it's kind of like a film studio, except instead of making films or producing films, we are helping to produce networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's core to this thesis that I have that any creator, whether you are a indie musician or whether you are an entrepreneur of a venture-backed startup, your success is uh, really a function of whether or not you have access to the networks that you need when you need them. And you know everything distills from these networks. You know, money, information, people, power. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the, the thing that I thought that I could, you know, if I don't have a bucket full of cash to deploy, um, or if I don't have an army of people to deploy to various projects, the thing that I can be helpful around is around helping kind of facilitate and grow and build networks um, either at Orbital or also kind of by proxy helping uh, other people do that. And in a lot of ways with the entrepreneurial design class that you mentioned, um, that's kind of what we're teaching the students to learn. You know, success for them is not just about designing a really pretty, beautiful thing that works intellectually, conceptually, and all that. It still has to work in practice. And that in order to do that, and this is why running crowdfunding projects are great, they're forced to think about how they facilitate networks, and then they're usually surprised by the outcome. So Orbital uh, has no employees, mm-hmm. um, but I've had a ton of help from uh, the community. You know, a lot of my former students helped me start it up. A lot of people who I kind of previously just had as business acquaintances have kind of stepped in and helped me in various ways. And so, like, it's. Its existence is kind of almost a testament to that thesis, which is kind of neat. Yeah, Gary and I actually met because he led the design cohort that I was participating in for the last <laughs> so couple should, weeks. I should <laughs> probably describe that more yeah. uh, in more concrete detail. You know, one one kind of thing that I've had to uh, think about is, um, you know, how does this thesis really um, impact people on a day-to-day basis and, and how, in, in what way is it relevant? So I think one one class of creators that I think you know is somewhat underserved are like the people that work in startups today. Uh, and I kind of see you know designers and product managers and engineers as creators as well. Um, but in, they have this challenge of how do they kind of improve and level up and become better at their work. And it's not purely a function of craft. It's not purely a function of skill. Um, It's often a function of like learning how to make better decisions or learning how to be more efficient or learning how to uh, think more strategically. And you get that through experience, but that takes a really, really long time. Mm -hmm, So, you know, if you could facilitate a trusted network of peers and if they could learn from each other's, other's experiences, then that could be really powerful. Um, and so that's uh, one example of one of the programs that we've uh, uh, created at Orbital. Uh, we've created networks for designers, for product managers, for engineering managers. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's based on this idea too that like the workspace is very performative. You mm-hmm. know, it's, and you're there to you, you got hired to do a job or you got promoted to do a certain thing. Yeah. And so your job is to execute and make it work. But it's not you can't you can't necessarily review and reflect effectively in that space. And so you need a different space. And so that's what Orbital facilitates. It was a really awesome experience to have gone through, just to like learn from other people at like larger companies to see how design scales across teams and how... Or doesn't. Or doesn't. Or doesn't. Yeah. More than often. Um, I'm curious, Gary, um, you've been doing this for a couple of years now. What are questions that come up from cohort to cohort? 
Wow. Well, for the technically your cohort was the second round. Okay. So we've run um, we've run six cohorts over the past six months, mm-hmm. um, and I think over 120 people from 50 companies have participated. So it's been really great to see um, kind of this broad range. I would say actually in terms of like common lessons, um, by week two or week three people are at the phase where they start to see that the problems they're experiencing aren't limited to them. Yeah. Right? And and that's important because I think that, like, unless you're able to properly contextualize the challenges that you're going through, you know, some things are just a function of org structure mm-hmm. or they're a function of the stage of growth that you're in or they're a function of the industry that you're in. Yeah. And then some are just you. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, some, like, yeah, this is your problem. Like, this is something that you have to work on. Yeah. Um, but if you can't tease those things apart, it can be overwhelming. It can be really, really tough. Sure. And, you know, I think that, you know, that ends up resulting in like people like leaving jobs because they think that you know everything is tainted and everything is beautiful on the other side of the fence yeah um but and i think that's one thing that kind of comes up is that people start to learn that um this context that they have is is it makes everything better in a sense because they know that they're not the only ones going through stuff i think the other thing that happens um as a result too is that they really start to understand the value of having a network of peers Mm-hmm. So when, yeah. when I worked in venture, um, it was not uncommon to uh, see that the senior executives of all these companies all have you know one-on-one coaches. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about why that is, it's because it's really hard. Right? It's really yeah. hard to do a job and perform well, and you need that space. You need that outlet. You need this outside perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not really. It's just not really like economically feasible to hire one-on-one coaches for every single employee. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's where I think peer networks are a really good solution. You know, I think the other thing too for me was um, when I first joined the firm, I was actually a little bit kind of shocked when I saw how a lot of the portfolio companies were running things. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was like, oh, my gosh, they're not doing things the way that I've done them. Like, they're all screwed. Like, someone's got to go tell (laughs) the board that (laughs) these companies are all, you know, messed up. And what I slowly, you know, realized was like, oh, wait a second. You know, they're fine. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm the one that's imposing my own dogma on them. And actually, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? Like, as long as you have a process that works for the team that's aligned with who the founders are that is allowing these companies to make forward progress that's mm-hmm. great right right and if it's and if it involves like weird practices and you know weird rituals to do that like so be it yeah. uh and that really opened up my mind to the fact that wow there's so much to learn if you know you could get people into a room to learn from each other yeah i wouldn't be surprised if you get a lot of requests from like human resources teams at different companies just being like, can you help our company sort of understand the state that it's in and grow appropriately or like survive (laughs) a growth phase or do something like that? I don't know. I I feel like if I were thinking about like how a company's like people can really benefit from like some kind of self-awareness like that is so like tantamount to that. Uh, So I I think I would view what, I I think I would view the work that I'm doing much more around building resiliency than necessarily um, creating solutions. And I think that like, if you can make a team or a company more resilient, then they're likely to survive longer. Yeah. And in that time, maybe they'll find their path forward. But if I try to go out and prescribe things, 
you know, the other thing you learn in adventure is like no one knows what they're doing and <laughs> no one can really predict outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit, can you tell us about your um, involvement in Letters for Black Lives? Um, so Letters, Letters for Black Lives kind of came about as a, um, a kind of collective reaction to a really horrible week in July mm-hmm. um, where two black men were shot by police. Was this um, after um, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that I, along with lots of other people, kind of were in this mindset of like, what, just like, what do we do? What can we do? Like, what's, like, we have to do something. So one of my friends, Christina Shi, who's also uh, my teaching partner at um, SVA, and uh, also an advisor to Orbital, <laughs> uh, and just a very good friend, uh, was on a train back from Boston, and she, t- she sent out this tweet that um, was actually kind of based on early reports that the police officer that shot uh, Flando Castile was Asian American. Mm-hmm. And having kind of seen all of the Peter Liang protests, yeah. her perspective was like, we need to really get ahead of this and educate our communities about anti-blackness. Yep. Um, as it turns out, the police officer was not Asian American, mm-hmm. but I don't think that really detracts from Christina's you know, statement. Point. I yeah. think yeah. that mm-hmm. holds pretty strongly. Yep. Um, and as it turns out, a lot of people uh, cared about it as much as Christina did. So she tweeted out this Google Doc, and then tons of people kind of came in, and uh, under the idea that we were going to craft a letter to... Uh, kind of share with our communities and what also happened as a result was that you know they had this idea of like hey we should get everyone to translate it and so tons more people kind of came in and uh, wanted to get involved in in translating this so my job in a lot of this or kind of my contribution was I'd say in like the scaffolding (laughs) like like, hey, we have a lot of people in this Google Doc. Let's uh, let's move things around in this Google Doc so it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Or just coordinating you know resources in that sense. And so over the course of a weekend, we kind of published a letter. Um, we uh, released that letter on the internet. Two hundred people showed up over that weekend to help translate that letter into like over twenty languages mm-hmm. over like a two day period. Which is like ridiculous because yeah. you know you all know how hard it is for to do like any sort anything. of internationalization exercise <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> or, or to localize anything. Yeah, you know I think it's just indicative of just how much people wanted to do something to this. And then over the next week, we were able to get a lot of people to do readings, both audio and video readings, so yeah. that that media could be more accessible for in language, you know, newspapers and TV and uh, all that. So that was kind of the, the, the core of the, the project. Um, it, was, it was kind of a whirl, whirlwind, you know, I think, like, week of just uh, coordinating lots of different people on lots of different systems and actually successfully, like, shipping something. Totally. And so now it exists as an open set of resources. They're published on Medium. They're actually also in GitHub. And um, they've inspired um, a lot of different alternate versions of the letter, too, which is yeah. great. Um, and I think that um, it's been just kind of nice to see uh, people respond to it. Mm-hmm. I'll say that, I mean, police violence against specifically African Americans hasn't, like, stopped in its entirety, but, like, what is sort of, like, the future of this document? I kind of view this project uh, like, 
you know, kind of as, uh, what's the word, like cultural production. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you, have y'all seen like Candy Chang's Before I Die? Oh, is that the, that's the, like the wall? Yeah. Before? graffiti project right oh and they fill in the blank line yeah yeah okay gotcha mm-hmm. you know the power in that project isn't that she just wrote this letter that said before i die in this one thing yeah. it's that all these people showed up and participated in that and it's that collective action that i think is the the power of that piece yeah. um i kind of see the Letters black lives project as something that's similar mm-hmm. in the sense that it was this collective song that everyone wanted to participate in um, and it didn't really have a purpose, so to speak. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of frame it that way because, you know, all of the real hard work is being done on the ground with community organizers and right. protesters mm-hmm. and uh, advocates. And just, you know, this project is a really beautiful expression, um, but I try to, to stay away from, from framing it as a protest movement. Yep. Or uh, something that is around, you know, trying to be, you know, community organizing and, mm-hmm. and all of that. I would say though that like one direct kind of impact uh, that I could probably speak to is just the impact on the people who were involved in the project. Yeah, yeah. Um, a large number of the people who participated were people who don't consider themselves really political, mm-hmm. um, who don't consider themselves activists. Yeah, and you know, that's a, that's a slow process of uncovering, you know, what your belief system is yeah. and what things matter to you and what things don't matter to you. And I think the project was helpful, you know, at least for those individuals in starting to, you know, find the words to talk about, you know, what they believe in and what they don't yeah. or what they find wrong. And the, that's kind of the power of the project in the sense, right, is that in addition to just the English letter, you the, the existence of this letter now, you know, in all these different languages means that there's a, you know, at least a few percentage point chance, you know, greater likelihood mm-hmm. that someone could have a discussion, you know, than there was yeah. without it. Because totally. how often... Do we find ourselves, you know, lacking the words to express, you know, how we feel? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. This, I feel like especially, this podcast is, like, part of why we're trying to figure that out. Especially mm-hmm. across generations, yeah. if you Absolutely. are in immigrant families, and, like, how many, like, there, there are tons of things that I don't talk about with my parents, and it's not because I don't love my parents, it's just, it's like, it's really hard to talk about things yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was one of the people who saw that doc and realized that... Wait, you did a reading. Um, I didn't do a reading. I actually, so when I tried to do a reading, I, I, I realized that I couldn't read it like normally. So I actually made the, so in Japanese, there's like a lot of characters that will, the reading of it will change depending on the context because it's uh, not like a phonetic language. Right. So I wrote the hurigana, which is like the actual phonetic approximations, not approximations, but like the phonetic translations above the characters. And then I put that in the doc. But well, like you said, like that, as a person who is still navigating like her perspective on what my position is like what even are the words i can say to make things more right like it i felt like it gave like it i felt like it gave me like so much power yeah and just at an abstract level yoko i think the thing that you said is actually completely spot on which is that um the you know, I think a lot, a lot of the reasons why I'm very interested in this concept of networks is because, you know, it's through networks that, um, you know, you can start to look at, 
this incredible shift of powers a shift of power that's happening you know Mm -hmm. and and that you know that project was a demonstration of collective agency yeah i was it was incredible just to see people in 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 a live document just like talking to each other oh that was that was just nuts it was Mm -hmm. like it it was crazy (laughs) and i think maybe that's the heart the, the thing that i wish we had found a way to to document better um but there just the the activity of all of the Google Docs during that weekend, translating in those languages, uh, was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, the Koreans were really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> the Koreans developed a voting system for a line-by-line translation. So wow. they would, so they would like translate. Uh, they would take each sentence apart, and everyone would take a chance, uh, take a swing at translating the sentence. And then they had another column in the table that was for people to vote on which translation was the best of them. And then they aggregated all of that. And then they had like a second round of voting, and they did this all within the affordances of like a Google Doc. Wow, wow. that's awesome. Go Koreans and go Google. <laughs> oh my God. As a person who loves processes, I wish I might. I wish I could see that, like, that thing you were saying, like, the live editing of that happening. That sounds awesome. I think you talked about the the difficulty of expressing things, right? Yeah. And I think that that is such a uh, really just important thing to, to, to highlight. And, you know, so when when we were in the process of writing, um, uh, writing the English letter, um, I was not actually that happy with how that letter was coming mm-hmm. uh, or, or how it was working out because mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, this letter is like, it's kind of soft. It's not really, it's not really getting to the, the core of this. And mm-hmm. like, if we really want to talk about anti-blackness, we really need to be talking to or educating our communities around this concept of white supremacy, right? Because mm-hmm. that's kind of the root. Mm-hmm. And Christina looked at me and she's like, okay, well, why don't you tell me how to translate white supremacy into Chinese? Uh-huh. And I was just like, oh, okay, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, you know, helped cement, you know, the approach that we took, which was to really think about, you know, meeting people where they are. Yeah. You know, and that you, if you, if your goal is to change versus, or if your goal is progress versus to demonstrate that you are intellectually superior, you're going to do different things, you know? And so the, we wanted to keep the letter to, you know, closer to 500 words than 5,000 words. Yep. I think we landed at like 700. Uh, we wanted to keep a familiar tone, and and that and um, and then we wanted to um, not uh, turn it into you know a thesis. And so, you know, we were talking about current events, and it was very conversational. And that those constraints were beneficial, I think, for a lot of reasons. One. Um, they made the translation process easier. Yeah. Right. Because if you're gonna, if you have to translate like a, a five thousand, <laughs> like you're not getting that done in a weekend. No. You know? Plus, you're gonna have a bunch of people, and if you're using complex language, that increases the difficulty, you know, even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two constraints were really, really important. It just ultimately was about, you know, meeting people where they are. Yeah. I also feel like the way it was written was really conducive to just starting conversations, as opposed to like having it be like this is the document this is the thing that you need to read and then like that's it yeah and um, and that was really great too because it turned into a thing that i think for a lot of people they could talk to their parents about right yeah. like hey did you hear about this letter thing yeah. yeah as opposed to hey mom dad here's this letter here's thing like a manifesto <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah and and that made it you know sometimes with difficult subjects it's better to talk about the thing 
as a versus having this conversation of like I have to fix you or I have right. to talk about this thing where I think you're a bad person and yeah. and you know like then they're like why are you making assumptions about me and, mm-hmm. and so you know so that uh, it worked out well for a lot of reasons yeah well thank you for your involvement in that project I mean yeah. I feel like this is a good time to transition to our segment called how Asian are you <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to refill. Yes, we definitely, we definitely need to refill. <laughs> Cheers. Um, Cheers. Alright. Do you have a separate friend group that is entirely Asian people? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Can you uh, tell us more about that? <laughs> Do you speak like only English with these uh, all Asian Yeah, I, I, I don't speak any other Asian languages. Right? See? I mean... There's a, a lot of people have them. Have you read, there's an Onion article about this. Have you yeah, read it? It's yeah. like a pretty, I don't know. I feel like it went viral among my group of Asian friends. I had like so many people send that to me. It's yeah, just so like, accurate though. guy has a separate group of just, just Asian, Asian friends. friends. And like the last line is something like, there is a guy who was observing them and he was just like... Hollis added that the one time he bumped into Cho and his Asian friends that they were all speaking English, so he doesn't really see what the big deal is. <laughs> and it says something about like how the Hollis like invites the his like Asian friend to like bring his Asian friends and the Asian friends like oh yeah maybe we'll meet up with you later and then it never happens (laughs) which is like embarrassingly a thing that I've probably done or I've been subjected to even yeah I mean it's just hard to mix your your friend groups in general but like whenever I've had like a birthday party I'm like okay do I invite the Asians? It's time for my worlds to collide right now. I don't really feel... I do have a separate group of, like, eight... I have a group of, like, Asian friends, but I've, I've never... I don't know. I've never really had any sort of problem with, like, mixing them. But I think I'm also just, like, not that considerate about that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, I'm just like, whatever. Gary, tell, be us, fine. tell us about your 100% Asian oh. friend group. Well, it's complicated because I think that a lot of them are in the Bay Area. Oh, yeah. Know? So uh, in there, it's just like, oh, they're just my friends. Mm-hmm. But they're, m- many of them are Asian. Mm-hmm. I think here in New York, it's a little bit different because my ar- my network here has been architected so differently. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, like there's like the people that you go get dim sum with, yeah. or like go sing karaoke with, mm-hmm. or like you know like just the all of the the things. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like not really a thing that you have to explain every time you like. Oh, and yes. this is like a tarot king, <laughs> and then you actually have to like search by the song title, not yes. the artist, because that the artist book is over there. Like someone else is reading that book. Well, what's funny is actually when, when I go out to dim sum, I'm usually like the whitest person there. Or I try to. Oh, I me try too. To, I, I, I try to design it that way. So yes. Like, so like I'm secretly trying to like invite someone who I know speaks Cantonese. Yes. Yep. So like so clutch. That's the power play. And so then like clutch. you invite your Chinese friend, they're like, I don't speak Cantonese, I speak Mandarin. You're like, oh, you're useless. <laughs> Where's that one thing that I ordered I'm, that one I'm time? A, I'm a pointer. Like when I go to dim sum, I'm a pointer. Oh, I'm a pointer too. Yeah, I'm like, can you open that? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm just like, yes. We no, should make no. name tags that say, please open things for me. <laughs> That would be so nice. Seriously. Yeah. I, I also wish I could read, like, that karaoke, karaoke remote. Yeah. Because, like, I only press the numbers and one button. <laughs> Who knows There's what so many other, like, there are, like, 20 other are. buttons on that remote, and I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. Yeah, as a designer, that must be infuriating, because, yeah. like, they, they don't do anything. I mean, remote controls, in general, I feel like, are <laughs> banes of designer's existence. They are. They are definitely. <laughs> 
second question Mm -hmm. and last question. (laughs) What is your opinion on spam? Oh, like like Masubi. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love spam. Right? Yeah. I feel like this, I don't know. I'm realizing now that this is like not, there's no question even to ask here, except that. I think that I had a a process of being exposed to it, though. Yeah, because it's not like a, it's a Hawaiian thing. So one of my roommates in college was from Hawaii. Yep. So he would always eat Spam eggs and rice every Saturday. Oh, that sounds so good. Um, <laughs> and then living in San Francisco, like, you know, I met a lot of people from Hawaii. Yeah, so, a lot of offshoots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the whole Spam and thing was like, oh, wow, that's, like, amazing. Yeah. So I also grew I'm up. spam Yeah, totally. <laughs> I also grew up, well, I grew up thinking that Spam was gross because I had never had it. Mm-hmm. And, like, common and culture. <laughs> yeah, it comes from a can. And, like, the, the common American understanding is that it's, like... Bomb post, shelter food. Yeah, bomb shelter post-apocalyptic <laughs> food. And it's, like, it's gross because it was meant to last forever. And I definitely thought it was gross until I actually tried it after I'd been to California. And my Californian friends were like, you need to learn this right now. <laughs> you need to, like, rewrite your opinion on spam. Here's some. And I'm just you should, like, you you're should, right. You should, so have, you, should have a, you should have a segment called, like, Hard Asian Lessons. Hard, Hard Asian, Asian Lessons. lessons. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's like the one time you learn something that, where you, where you learn that you weren't as Asian as you thought you were. That's until, so true. Until someone Man. showed you X, right? Yes. Yeah. Going so. back to sort of, like, the all Asian friend group and, like, having to explain things, like, I don't have to explain to my all Asian friend group why spam is delicious, right? <laughs> you just, like, don't have to rationalize yeah. that. I can imagine, like, my Californian friends just being like, oh, girl, wow, we have, I don't, never thought I'd meet one of, one of you. One of you. <laughs> and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Yeah, and then they schooled me. But I think right. just, just for the white people listening to this podcast, it's not like we're just, like, <laughs> taking the spam out of the can and eating it. You, like, season it with, like, sugar and soy sauce. And you slice it into delicious pieces. Yeah. You, put then... it, you fry it. And you put it between rice. But, I, you know, rice. I would say, though, that, like, I'm not sure if I'd be down with having a spam masubi at, like, a sushi restaurant. Yeah, because oh, it's, yeah. like, not, it's definitely not a highbrow thing. You're not going to see, like, Jiro, like, you know, shaving <laughs> off, like, <laughs> off the can. Exactly. You know, I went, to this, I went to this restaurant that is a Japanese restaurant, and they served a potato chip sushi. Wow. Whoa. How was it? It was good. It's good? Yeah. Recommend it? I saw that huh. on LinkedIn you are endorsed for omakase, sushi, and whiskey. So, I mean, I trust your opinion on this. <laughs> By the way, those are the only three things Gary is endorsed for. <laughs> is that by design? <laughs> I have not solicited or, like, campaigned for those things to be selected. So it's just, it's the magic of the internet, I guess. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I think that, like, brings us to the end of our interview, Gary. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank Thank you for having me. Uh, I feel like I just, yeah, I was totally right. I got schooled so hard. (laughs) I just felt like I learned a lot. (laughs) That's what happens when you're really old. No, God. (laughs) Gary, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am on the internet at Mm GaryChow.com and Orbital is at Orbital.nyc. Do you mind spelling Gary Chow for our listeners? Sure. It's G-A-R-Y-C-H-O-U. Nice. Great. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. Yay! Yay! Yay. Yoko, hey, where can we find your work on the internet? You can find me on the internet at PSYOKO on Twitter and Instagram. Kate, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet at C-M-Y-K-A-Y-T-O-E. 
at CMY Kato. Um, and if you want to follow the podcast, you can follow us at S W A Y F podcast on Twitter, Twitter and, and Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> that went better than I thought. Right? <laughs> because we're just so insane. We're so insane. And if you want to send us a listener letter so that we can get in sync with you, you can send hey. it to <laughs> swayfpodcast at gmail.com. Please be nice. Please be nice. We know who you are. Yay. Bye, bye, bye. Bye.